Hi, I'm Ann Delisi. Welcome to episode 35 of Essential Conversations. In 2019, when the British duo Ida May released their album Chasing Lights, produced by Ethan Johns, I talked with them about the influence that American music, specifically blues and jazz, had on them and their music. They were so obsessed that they moved to the U.S. We started by talking about their move from the U.K. to the United States. Oh, we were living in my hometown, and then we moved to London. And we were living in a like a one-bedroom attic flat in Holloway in central London where there's a hundred languages spoken within a mile of where we lived. And then we came out to Nashville. <laughs> that was quite the culture <laughs> shock, I think, for us. It was, yeah. It was strange. And it was a real gamble for us as well, you know, coming out here and making that move after we got some visas. Because it's not easy to come to this country. They make it really difficult. Yeah, <laughs> so, oh, you have to get in. And at that point in your career, what was happening um, with you musically and what were you looking at at the future and what juncture were you at when you made that move here? It's funny you say that because everything changed on the flight yeah. out here. So we had a big plan. This record went through a journey. We recorded it with Ethan Johns and that was everything with, with him was wonderful. But we went through two different major labels to get it released and then it's eventually come out on 30 Tigers. We've been fantastic, but... When we moved to Nashville, we'd just finished the record um, and we'd just gotten the visas, packed everything up, got on the flight. We were signed to a major label. At that moment that in time. We shouldn't have mentioned. <laughs> we signed to a certain major label. Um, and as we um, transferred in Iceland, so we were getting a connecting flight in Iceland, we had like a load of missed calls on Chris's phone from management. We're like, that's strange. So we called them back and we found out in Iceland that the head of the label that we were signed to was leaving, had left the day before, um, and that all the bands on the label except us signed. were being dropped that day. Um, and they said, we don't really know what's going on with you guys, uh, but we'll let you know when you get here. And we were like, okay, well, we've just moved so our whole lives it across was a the world. huge transition. <laughs> Long story short, we were given the option to whether we wanted to stay or go and then we decided to leave because we had so much trouble with big labels over the years. So it was a huge upheaval even just getting here. <laughs> so the move was planned a certain way and everything changed <laughs> mid-air. We had an eight-hour flight to think about our lives <laughs> and what was going to happen. Because <laughs> we're, we're used to being the underdog. Being but British, we're, yeah, so. we're quite... And also we're very used to... Plan, we've been in a band since we are 19, so we're used to things changing on a that was pretty extreme though and so now you find yourselves with this album out when were these songs written how long have these songs been in your lives uh, well some of them have been in our lives a few years because there were songs that didn't quite fit that were half finished kind of from from earlier and then some of them Ethan really likes to track quickly so a lot of them he was asking which are the most recent songs you've written and because we recorded the album in two halves, the second half of the records, songs like Boom, Boom, Boom and Higher Than The Light were probably written just a couple of weeks before we went into the studio. So it's a real mix mm -hmm. of tracks. Um, I have to ask you, I've had a fascination with the real world studios since I remember yeah, Peter Gabriel creating them in the 80s. Yeah. Um, but I have never talked to anybody that recorded there. What are those studios like? Oh, the one in box. So the one where we recorded is just—it's so beautiful. It's um, it is like its own world. You it's stay like this, there. It's like a spaceship has landed by this river. It's a really incredible. It's, cut, it's like structure. Teletubby land. It's like cut grass in, all over the roofs. Cut into the grass almost, yeah. And Ethan tracks in the wood room, which is like an old flour mill, I think, or yeah, storage it's an old mill. Mill, 
which has big wooden uh, and stone walls. And they have like a little cottage that you stay in and they have a chef and everyone that works there because they run their WOMAD festivals from there. Oh, so right. all of Peter, Peter Gabriel's enterprises are in this space. So it's this really nice communal feeling and you're right by the river. and In the countryside. In the countryside, yeah. in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's pretty not idyllic, the real world, which is funny. Yeah. Which is ironic. <laughs> it's like a bubble. <laughs> <laughs> it is amazing. And uh, it's a very special place to make music. And that room sounds beautiful, that wood room as well. Oh, I remember Billy Cobham talking about, the drummer Billy Cobham talking about being in the drum booth and it was over the river or something and you oh, could yeah. see, yeah, the, the, see the water, yeah, yeah, the yeah. water <laughs> beneath. And I thought, man, this place sounds absolutely magical. Leave it, to, <laughs> leave it to Peter Gabriel, of course. Do you two remember the first time you sang together and what that mm. felt like? I don't freaking remember. I can remember, so we were living in Bath in the UK. Um, we were studying there and uh i was playing open mic nights so i had like this one old Stella guitar that i would take around and i would play out all the time so i'd play three or four open mics a week sometimes two a night just out to play and try and get better and um steph started coming to my open mic nights i remember yeah. that and i was playing jazz recitals and stuff like playing p- grand pianos and singing people, <laughs> and I think we played together. You played guitar I with played me guitar before we you. sung together. I pretended I could play jazz guitar. <laughs> <laughs> pretended very well through in some major sevenths. Yeah. Um, and then I do remember we had because we were studying at college and we had one like singing lesson together. And I remember the singing teacher saying, yeah. "Well, your voices go really well together." Mm-hmm. I think we only did that once. Yeah. So that might have been the first time we sung together, actually. I don't know. Yeah. It's all a bit blurry now, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It is a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. It is, um, you know, we talk about sibling harmony and how beautiful, you know, that brothers and sisters sound together, but you two have, like, what feels like sibling harmony when you you sing together. That sounds like it was pretty immediate that... It felt natural for you guys. It was real. We got really lucky. And that's what she said. And I remember in this lesson, she was like, you guys are really lucky. This, this isn't, this doesn't normally happen sort of thing. And it's, it's weird because Steph can sing much lower than me and I can sing much higher than her. So we're actually kind of the opposite way around. It's just kind of weird. So the way we harmony is, is weird. Sometimes we can't hear who's singing. Like there'll be certain moments on the record where I think it's me, but it's Chris and like vice versa because we flip a lot. It's really weird. Yeah, it is weird. Trying not to think about it in case it goes away. (laughs) (laughs) Now when I hear your music, I'm going to be hearing it differently. See who's who. Well, like who is who. Like you would have to have this like internal, I mean this, this unwritten language together to be able to twist those harmonies around and flip them and make mm. it all work. I mean, I'm sure it's not this conscious thing at this point. I would imagine it's not. I don't, we've Steph been is the, Steph's the so one long. that is amazing at harmonies. I'm pretty... Chris bad. has such a wild <laughs> voice that um, it goes off and I have to try and follow it. <laughs> yeah. And Steph is pretty good at reading my mind now. <laughs> Let's talk about the blues, um, a music that was born in the United States. You guys sound like you're from here, <laughs> from the U.S. <laughs> Talk about the influence of blues music on you. I know you went to Robert Johnson's grave site. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What about the blues sort of got into your psyche? Well, it was a big... Th- I mean, Detroit 
had a big part to play in that for me because I was I was obsessed with the British blues boom. You know, like Peter Green and Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck and the Stones and Free and Zeppelin. And then, I mean, really quickly, you start to hear the name Robert Johnson being banded around. And it was about that time I was listening to, I think I was listening to the White Stripes and like the Von Bondies and the Go and all and the, the early kills. Like this, this, all the underground Detroit stuff that was happening here, I picked up on it somehow. I can't remember how and was trying to find CDs from, in Portland and stuff because I was just obsessed with it even then. And someone in an interview had mentioned Sun House and then basically once a week I, in the UK I, I went to a CD shop and bought everything Robert Johnson had ever recorded for, for, for a fiver. And then the next week it was Blind Willie McTale and the next week it was Sun House and the next week it was Blind Willie Johnson and the next week it was Kokomo Arnold. And, <laughs> the, you know, it just, I did it every week, you know, my pocket money or whatever. And... Um, I just became completely obsessed. I'd never heard uh, the level of intensity that kind of one-man gunslinger, you know, like Robert Johnson or Sun House, on his own. I'd never heard anything like that. And when I heard Blind Willie McTell, I was like, I couldn't tell if there was three guitars, seven guitars, what was going on? And I just became obsessed. And they all became my heroes mm. very, very quickly. There was nothing that compared to it in my mind. But um, I also kind of felt that it, a little later on, after I'd you know sat and listened to all these CDs and imported rare cuts from Germany and stuff, and kind of realised it wasn't my music to play, so that's why we've always kind of shifted and tried to change it in what we do. So, just like those guys from the the British blues boom, we've tried to re regurgitate and twist and change, take those techniques and ideas, but because we often you know we've been asked to play a lot of these blues festivals now, and we're not really a blues band, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I play some of it and we can do it, but we're not, the record really isn't a blues record. It's just like, you know, it's just inspired. And, and the funny thing was when I met Steph, Steph was kind of in the same boat, but on the female side of things. Yeah, I came at it through jazz. So I was studying jazz piano and stuff and then listening to Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday and Dinah Washington. And then I got really into Esther James. And then there's a blues record that Ella Fitzgerald did that was only released in Germany that I had. And the same as Chris is sort of sadly but in a cd shop when you're a young teenager the jazz and blues stuff is really cheap like you can buy like everything you know <laughs> basie smith has ever recorded for four pounds and everyone else that i went to school with i grew up in a suburb of london so everyone's listening to like black eyed peas and miss dynamite and stuff and <laughs> for some reason i just became obsessed with these big female voices and then from that gospel and mahalia jackson and stuff and i just couldn't believe that that you could do that with your voice, you know, similarly to Chris. And it was so moving. And so you don't really know what it's doing to you, but there's, you know that there's something, you know, that it means something. So, And then we met that way at college, sort of shared a sort of a joint love for the similar, similar thing. I think we both have got a real kick about all of those old artists had their own thing. No one could play like, no one could play like the other. You know, like no one could play like Lightning Hopkins and no one could sing like Bessie Smith. You know, they were each their own thing, which is quite hard to come by growing mm. up, I guess, in the UK, that uniqueness. So you toured with Greta Van Fleet, and I have to yeah. ask you about that because they're from Michigan. Yeah, man. And they recorded yeah. their last album in uh, just a few miles from here, actually. Mm. What, how did you get on that tour, and what was it like to, um, to open for um, this group? It that, was wild for us. Was it? It was yeah. amazing. You know, I mean, we could we, have taken anyone... We just turned up really and we did a, we were on tour with um, Marcus King mm -hmm. and they, I think they had the same management 
And I think Danny, the drummer, was saying they, they watched some of our music videos somehow. And then out of nowhere, bear in mind, we, we'd only been here, we'd been on the road with Marcus King and a few other people, and no so one like really knew who year, we were, the record yeah. wasn't out. All of a sudden, at Christmas time last year, they were looking for an opener for their two sold-out shows at the Fox Theatre in Detroit, and they didn't have one. So we got a phone call, I think, like three days before, saying, hey, do you want to come and open up at the Fox? <laughs> um, we were like, well, yeah, but my, like, my God, how? What? Okay. So we, we turn up anyway, and we'd never played a show that large in our lives. And that, that theatre is unbelievable. I mean, it's, it gives the yeah. Albert Hall a run for its money. It's just astonishing. So we turn up, and we have minds are blown, you know. Anyway, we do the, to the two shows and we kind of say hi to them a little bit and they stare at my guitar a bit and we share, <laughs> we share some licks or whatever. And then, it all happened very quickly. Then they asked shows, us to come play in yeah. Seattle with them and then another one. And then we were going to go out with them. They offered us the European tour. We were like, well, that would be amazing. And then they cancelled it. But it's a long story. We were halfway across France <laughs> when we heard that they cancelled it. <laughs> Anyway, so then we ended up, they ended up giving us they the, the US, US run, tour instead. Which is great for tour. us. And it was just astonishing. I mean, their fan base is unbelievable. It's like Beatles mania. I've never seen anything like it. They'd have fans cutting through with bolt cutters, you know, through the fences. To try to and the see buses, them, you know. like, getting ready and stuff. Every show it's crazy. sold out. And they're the, just the sweetest, loveliest kids. And they love music and, like, they work so hard at everything and... You know, they were at the Fox, they were, I don't know if I should say, but they were rehearsing for maybe four or five hours before doors even opened. You know, they're taking this really seriously. They take seriously. it really, really seriously and they know so and much And their about dad music. is in a blues band and he's a blues harp player and stuff. So we, we have a lot in common with those guys. And uh, to watch the spectacle of like young people going out and watching Roots Rock and Roll, hearing large Marshall Stacks and a live band for the first time, like these kids are having a spiritual experience watching that band. And they really care. So for us, it was it's terrifying for us. We had to play 45 minutes, just the two of us, a like guitar. And some of the shows 10, stadiums, people. you know. Forest <laughs> Stadium. Like, so like, it was a baptism of fire. It was us. incredible. And, and we, we had, learned yeah. a lot. And we just went stages. out on our own with a guy that we know from... Norfolk in England. He came and helped us, drive. There was know, just three of us. In Forest Hill Stadium. In Forest Hill Stadium. <laughs> <laughs> no text, no sound men, no nothing. Oh my gosh. And it was, it was awesome. a wild ride yeah. for us, yeah. Yeah, we are, we're indebted to those guys for having us out. Yeah. Good That's friends really now. cool. Coming up, part two in the conclusion of my conversation with Ida May. WDET celebrates 75 years of public radio with gratitude to our dedicated listeners. Listeners like you cherish community voices, local music, and independent journalism. This spring fundraiser, we're counting on your support, just as you count on us. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app. Here's part two and the conclusion of my conversation with Ida May, in which we talk about the Northern Soul movement in the UK, their rigorous touring schedule at the time, and English and American music. I, I'm fascinated brilliant. by the relationship between English and American music because, I mean, it is essentially English. We got a first came here, big folk book of songs collected in Missouri in the 1800s. They're all songs about where we grew up and where your parents were in yeah, Ireland and, and well. where my dad grows up in North Yorkshire. Everywhere. And then you realise just how short the history is between the two countries. Yeah. And that the music, even the blues, you hear European hymnal melodies and that. And, you know, 
the slide guitar and the whole, I mean the whole thing is it's just completely intertwined so it doesn't it makes perfect you know we get pissed off in the UK when you know English magazines will say why do we write about an English band playing American music when we have American bands playing it and I'm like excuse me like the Beatles the Stones like <laughs> really? Clapton like are you yeah. kidding me like that you won't write about us it's a symbiotic relationship all of these bands you know what I mean well if it wasn't for the UK you know some of these Motown artists would never have gotten the notoriety mm. and the attention. I mean, it wasn't until Dusty Springfield and you know, b- you know, brought all these Motown artists over yeah. there, and the Beatles covered yeah, tons of their music. I mean, yeah, yeah. Wilson Pickett and stuff they were covering and shit like that. And just think about you know, like Hendrix first made it big over there, White Stripes, Kings. Oh of yeah, Bill, you like. guys were embraced music from here first. We've got loads of friends that are Northern Soul DJs, like big guys, like quite well known guys that are all Northern Soul DJs. Huge scene. It yeah. is it is remarkable. And it, that is a that is a ridiculous I don't know if you've watched any documentaries on that in the UK, because that is the weirdest thing. So essentially it's like up north in the mill towns and the coal miners' towns in the UK, somehow in these little working men's clubs, people became obsessed with obscure kind of Motown soul. disco soul hits. And it's like a, that that a really, really weird, specific do? brand of Motown. It's not all Motown no. necessarily. It's like this weird selection. And that's why no one can really define what Northern Soul is because it's not really anything. Yeah. And like collecting all the badges from all these different working men's clubs, it became the weirdest scene that it's only listed huge. Yeah. Like for it's, a little while. And now it's kind of having a, you know, a renaissance, but it's the weirdest thing. Because no one, even the Northern Soul DJs I speak to, it's like an unknown knowledge of repertoire. Like... They have their own like it's weird, their man. own like like rules. Like you have to play yeah. like oh, the it's serious. Original. I'm like, oh, I have yeah, no it's idea. A serious thing. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's like a really big deal. This is how English people feel about this stuff. It's like roots American music is treated in the UK. Like people always say when they come over to the UK, how respectful and quiet the audiences are because we really treat it with reverence. Like it's an important. It's like the be- the bones of rock and roll came from this stuff. So we really treat it with reverence. That I don't think it's got over here. Like when we went out to Clarksdale. And uh, being a naive, you know, uh, English suburban kid, we went out and uh, I couldn't believe it. Uh, we were going to where Robert Johnson was exiled and Sunhouse was exiled and Charlie Patton lived. And, right. and these are just fucking ghettos. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I was like, yeah. what? I thought it was going to be like a tourist trail. And people are still living in the same shacks. It blew my mind because these guys are just my heroes. And I assumed that everyone was like, oh, yeah, yeah this is a big thing over here. And we got to the, that Clarksdale Museum. I put Muddy Waters' house where he grew up in there. But everyone is still living in all the yeah. other houses. <laughs> that, oh, yeah. They just picked it up and moved it. And I'm like, this is it's crazy. heartbreaking as you, well. Yeah. You guys... Blew uh, my mind. You guys have done a way better job of um, honoring a lot of the music that was made here than we are. Yeah. We actually stole, uh, uh, you know, this... There's preachers on that road trip, our first Mississippi road trip. If you listen to Feeling Getting Closer, there's the preachers off the radio and also the birds at the beginning. Oh, yeah. Of, yeah the birds at the beginning of Rightfully Honestly are the birds we recorded above Robert Johnson's grave, stuff like this. So we that's tried to brilliant. get a little bit of that atmosphere in there. That's know. so brilliant. Yeah. Oh, my to think God, what I else love we got it. in there. We got some other stuff, but I've forgotten that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. There's a bar in New Orleans as well. During this interview, we also talked about the recording process, working with Ethan Johns, and the magic of the first take. There is magic in a first take and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And just accepting how you sound. You're like, if I do this a hundred times, I'm probably only going to sound maybe slightly better or slightly worse. So, and people are only really reacting emotionally. They're not reacting technically. Isn't one of the songs on your? Wasn't it a demo or the? Easily, uh, uh, easily, easily a rehearsal? Love was like a rehearsal, like a run through. 
And then he just secretly kept it. A lot of them are first takes, yeah. yeah. He did a lot of, let's yeah. just run through it. You should always have it going. I mean, those are the moments, you know, that are so magical. And diminishing returns is, I yeah. think, there's something to that. No, it definitely is. Definitely you start is. to lose some stuff. And you have to commit. That's the biggest thing. You have to accept. There's a lot of acceptance in making a record as well. And if you do it 700 times, it's not going to get any better. It's probably going to get worse. Technically, it'll get better. But And if you haven't got it in seven takes, then you're not, it's not going to work, you know? Or something, you know what I mean? It doesn't work that way. Well, you know, technical ability is one thing, but getting an emotional reaction is another. It's the whole thing, And yeah. that's what matters. That's what makes people listen. You know, people yeah. can listen to a great guitar run. doesn't make you want to listen to a song again. Well, this is the irony. Like, I love guitar, but, like, I never want to listen to instrumental guitar music. Like, the best guitar player on the planet, I don't want to listen to that. Yeah. I want to listen to Lightning Hopkins, you know. <laughs> Just the way it goes. Yeah. Oh, I have one more one more question. Okay. Best road story. Best road oh, story. Crikey. Oh, there are so many. There's so many. There are so many at We've this been stage. on tour in the States for a year on our own, mainly in a car. So a lot of weird stuff happens to us all the time, <laughs> especially the way we look. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in Mississippi, they thought we were either sisters or a lesbian couple quite yes. a few times. That's true. Because yeah. <laughs> of my long hair, skinny jeans and Doc Martens. We actually had a, this is a long story, but I'll do the abbreviated. We were in Clarksdale, Mississippi the first time we came out to Mississippi and we went to Club uh, Ground Zero and the uh, mayor of Clarksdale thought, thought we, we were a lesbian, lesbian couple. couple. So if you're listening. <laughs> what else do we have? We had gunshots outside the venue in Macon, Georgia. We had a guy ask us if we were French at that particular show. That was a good one. This is just how crazy this last six, six, seven weeks has been. We started, we did, we went from Nashville to a show in Seattle to a show in California. Then we played three nights in a casino in Vegas. Then we went back to record with T-Bone Burnett in Santa Monica. Then we drove ourselves across the Mojave Desert, then across Arizona. To Telluride. Then into Colorado. We played four shows in three days in Telluride at 10,000 feet, which nearly killed us. <laughs> then we played in Denver. Then we flew to London for 12 hours. Then we flew to Switzerland, played in the medieval church. Then the next night we played on the Reeperbaum in Hamburg next night in to Amsterdam. 500 people. Then the next night in Amsterdam. Then the next night in Paris. Then we flew to Spain. We played in a speakeasy. Then we drove ourselves halfway across Spain, played in like a terrible rock bar. Then we drove ourselves back to Germany, played in Berlin, Hamburg, uh, Berlin, somewhere else and somewhere else. Then we flew to Milan. Then we flew to Milan. We played in Milan. Then we drove ourselves across Italy into Tuscany to play a wedding. Then we flew back to the UK. Then we flew out back to Nashville. We had a week off. Had and a week now off. We're on this tour. Then we went to Virginia, <laughs> New York. <laughs> And then wherever we were last night and now here. Basically, we can't say no is the... Uh, I think so, I mean, it, it sounds, it's not glamorous. And that's just us in a car, you know, and two guitars carrying our amps in our hand luggage. We're just going at it. You know. It's a good thing you guys <laughs> like each other. So talking about tour stories, I mean, there are so Every many day. things. Today, actually, we just got a sandwich and the girl said to Chris, I need to find my friend because we've always spoken about hearing an English accent in real life and I never thought I'd hear one and she needs to hear this. This is incredible. <laughs> Chris, <was> like, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> we went to another place in Ohio, pizza restaurant. <laughs> Steph orders, oh, can I just get a, like, a small margarita pizza? And the girl behind the counter just goes, <gasps> and puts her hand over her mouth and doesn't say anything for 10 minutes, for like 10 seconds. She's like, oh. <gasps> 
I just nothing. I was like, what? What's happened? It was ridiculous. Yeah, so we get... It's constant. It's constant. Oh, we were in Philadelphia. We were told to go back home as well. Someone told me to go back to where I came from. That's a new one. I'm so sorry <laughs> about new. that. Oh, man. I mean, the list is endless. Oh. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, all the tour stuff has been amazing. Going out with Greta, we played with them in, in Madison, Wisconsin. Went on stage with them to the big, one of the biggest crowds I think they'd played to and we'd ever seen. It was amazing. Yeah, and we've met something. Everyone's so lovely. You know, we yeah. always go to the merch stand and we meet everyone and... We have some amazing just, fans we've now. We've got some lovely, lovely fans and people that you see a lot. Like already, we've only been here a year, and there's sort of people that have seen us five times, which is incredible, you know. Yeah, so. and just joining people on stage, like Marcus King joining him on stage and Blackberry Smoke. And we played another festival in Nashville uh, where Emmylou Harris introduced us on stage. We played her oh, festival. That's a good, yeah, that was mad. And we only had a line check, so we ran on stage and we were plugging things in. And she was filling for time. So she was introducing us whilst filling for time. And I couldn't concentrate because like, Emmylou Harris is next to me filling for time and I'm trying to set up and I was like, I just want to hug Emmylou Harris. It was the weirdest <laughs> thing. And then backstage meeting Tommy Emmanuel and stuff and he's playing my guitar and stuff. This, I mean, it's been, it's been an amazing year. 